Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is Kate Cheryl. Kate is a writer, editor and creator of the excellent Burials and Beyond blog, which she describes as being about life, death and the weird bits in between. She is a keen enthusiast for cemeteries, unusual graves, death history, miserable Victorians and the paranormal, all of which shines through in her writing. In the interview, we start by talking about how she got interested in these subjects and what makes cemeteries and graveyards such fascinating places. Later on, we discuss the origins of the spiritualist movement in Britain, its influence on mediumship in more recent times, and how these practices are depicted in pop culture. All in all, a very fun and enlightening conversation. Enjoy! Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. What first got you interested in graveyards and these places where we remember the dead? Um, I suppose kind of the the dreamy gothy answer is that it's it's kind of in my blood. I suppose my um some of my earliest memories are being taken round um, my local cemetery in um, in Cleethorpes by my granddad, who used to walk me around the cemeteries and around the seafront twice a week every week for years and it just became something I looked forward to that I I started seeing places of rest from a very early age as not scary places or you know overly spooky places but interesting little libraries of people and I suppose that's where my kind of love of Victoriana and all of that came from as well because all the cemeteries I visited were predominantly Victorian ones and I suppose it just it started from that. It started from, yeah, my local cemeteries where my um, a lot of my dad's family were buried. And then when I learnt a bit about different styles of gravestones, then I started just ruining my family's life. And even when we went <laughs> on holiday anywhere, I, I had to visit the nearest graveyard, the nearest cemetery, whatever was closest. So, yeah, it's it's been a developing sort of obsession over many years and I think I'm I'm lucky enough now that I've been able to integrate it into my everyday life really my work life my social life and um yeah hopefully done done a tiny little bit of good at you know piquing people's interest in their in their local cemeteries I'd hope so anyway that's the goal absolutely and I think it's interesting that you say there that they're they are aren't they predominantly interesting places it's some of their aesthetics kind of lend themselves to spookiness, but mm. but the places themselves, at least at daytime, um, <laughs> aren't, aren't spooky at all, in my experience anyway. No, I mean, they're quite peaceful. I think they're one of the the places that should be most treasured in city environments and heavily built up environments, because quite often they're the only place where you can get a little little island of, of solitude, a little moment of peace and quiet. And um, I think places like, like London, really, that have got the big, you know, the magnificent seven Victorian cemeteries. They've got a really healthy relationship with the communities and the cemeteries. So the people nearby don't see them as spooky place where goblins and vampires live. You know, it's kind of, this is a beautiful 
sort of rec- recreation ground in a sense, certainly a place where the living have a place in this place for the dead. I think that's something that a lot of people are really pushing nowadays is the integrating places of, of rest into communities. There's a lot of really great work being done. And I think, yeah, the more the more we see things as places where you can do classes, you can have talks, you can, you know, do yoga, the the less chance there is of those places falling into disrepair or um experiencing too much vandalism. So I think it's an it's an important change to make in people's mindsets. Hmm. And is it is it fiction that's given graveyards their sort of spooky supernatural connections? Other than the fact that they are these are places where the dead people are buried. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a mix. I really do think it's a mix. I think a lot of I think human nature is that we like to frighten ourselves, you know, and we like to tell spooky stories and that there is this unceasing joy that can be found in making someone jump, you know. But um, I don't think it's it's just fiction, although certainly the ghost story, if we go back to, you know, 19th century and, and late 18th century ghost stories. Yeah, perhaps there's something, there's some, there's some blame to be placed there, but even that not not too many places in fiction and early cinema had horror centric things around around graveyards it was the haunting was elsewhere and there's usually a a chase or a dramatic scene taking place in the in the burial site but the site itself wasn't the source of all these things so i, I do think it's just this this human sort of learned repulsion should we say it being around the dead? We just, as a, I said maybe as a society at the at the moment, most of us don't know how to behave or interact in those sort of places, and other people don't know how to police those spaces. So it's there's just a lot of confusion, and then in the middle of that, you get horror films and the occasional ghost hunter vaulting a tomb, saying you know there's a demon in the corner. So um, yeah, I think it's a mix. The blame goes in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think you're right. I recently watched a lot of the Universal horror movies over Christmas, you know, <laughs> as, you, as you do. Um, and and I, I suppose graveyards aesthetically, obviously they're a very visual thing, aren't they? And I suppose if you're if you're telling a film, they they're quite a good background for something macabre to happen. Even though you know, like you were just saying, they're actually peaceful places where th- there isn't really that sense of foreboding or or anything macabre going on yeah i think probably blames the wrong word that i've been using i don't think seeing graveyards and cemeteries as as spooky places is necessarily a bad thing i mean yeah personally i've been involved in sort of gothy type business for over 20 years now so so you know I've, i've definitely um fed into that and enjoyed it a lot of it but yeah i think with with graveyards and cemeteries, like I say, they they make these amazing backdrops. They are architectural portfolios of a community over centuries. And if we think about it, how many people really go to see art galleries or feel comfortable seeing art in person, whereas a, a graveyard, although you may not see it like that initially, is technically a sort of open-air community 
art gallery in a way if you look at some of the really elaborate masonry of you know the, the 19th century and some of the different masonry techniques from before that it is it's a very tactile visual place where there's there's so much to appreciate from an aesthetic viewpoint that it's it's kind of untapped in that sense as well I think and of course if, if we think of people who used to very um aggressively interact with headstones doing headstone rubbings and those sort of things I think now that sort of thing is is banned um, because of the damage it does that has removed another comfortable comfortable um means of interaction with graveyards I think but definitely they are they are stunning places that we really should uh celebrate more definitely for their their artistic treats shall we say that they hold inside yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can. I completely agree. And it's going back slightly on what I've just said is that I, I've I've been to Highgate, but I haven't been to the part of Highgate where you re, you require sort of a tour. Um, I've only been to the I think this is the larger public part of Highgate that I've been to. So I, I really want to go back to the other part that I haven't been to yet. Oh, but, you must. You don't so, have to do a tour now. Oh, okay. As of but, 2020, I think. Sorry for interrupting. But like, no, no, not at all. You wander around on your own. It's brilliant. <laughs> But um, but someone I know was saying that they they might be able to organise a a tour of high, that part of Highgate at night, and I was like, oh, I would love to do that. So oh, <laughs> I do like the spooky stuff too, but it's about it's about having respect as well, isn't it? When you when you do do that, because you know things like Scooby Doo, they absolutely embrace that sort of aesthetic, that sort of slightly camp spookiness, I guess. But mm. but I do love that, and uh, so yeah, I guess it's about enjoying it but being respectful. Yeah, I, I suppose with that, respect's a very personal word. It's a very complicated mm. word, and I think that's something that a lot of cemetery trusts are still wrestling with at the minute, is one person's idea of what's respectful um, maybe is over-egging it a bit and maybe doesn't um, doesn't communicate well with contemporary cemetery needs or right. how cemeteries want to operate within communities. And so I think that's a constant, ongoing battle of what is respect what is appropriate and how hard do you come down on those imagined boundaries do you know what i mean i mean if we take um just an example highgate lots of people like taking photos with people in them in highgate so if just take that as as an example certainly people that are all dressed up and gothy and fabulous and so part of the cemetery trust might see that as appropriate because it's a public space well, although no space is truly public, it's all owned by the trust, but public are able to enter it. So someone might see that as appropriate and respectful because they're just posing near graves for a day out in the city. Whereas another person may see this individual and say, that's not appropriate. That's not respectful because you're putting yourself in the centre of this place of rest. You shouldn't be able to take pictures of people. And then someone else might take that one further and say no photographs at all in the cemetery because that's not respectful. And they're all viewpoints that I've known to, for, that people have encountered in cemeteries. I know people who are published cemetery historians, cemetery workers, real experts in the field that have been quite aggressively shouted at in cemeteries for taking pictures of graves for their academic work when another area of the um, the the trust or the people that look after the, the cemetery have given them express permission 
So it's all relative. And I think that's a really complicated discussion that's going on at the minute that I'm quite glad I'm not at the centre of. Yeah, definitely. I, it's, it, it is interesting. It's who these spaces are for, you know, who, mm. who are, are they? They're, they're a place where the, the dead are, but in a way they're, they're sort of for the living, aren't they? Yeah. Well, there's, there's certainly cemeteries that double up as wedding venues. I mean, they fall into a very strange grey area as far as some of these, some of these arguments um, go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I know I, from looking at your your website where you have your blog that you've done talks about how to read a graveyard. Um, mm. Can you can you give for people that are listening that might want to have a better idea of what gravestones might represent some of the artwork there? Are there any sort of places to start when you visit places like these? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think when it comes to reading graveyards, it's a lot easier if those places are Victorian because <laughs> Victorians loved their visual shorthand. Um, and I think it's something that if you have young children or people who aren't necessarily interested in graveyards, I mean, you know, we've all been dragged along to places we didn't want to go when, when we were younger. Um, but I think it's a, it's a good sort of game to play. Um, with people where say um, you'd see a broken column for example with like a a laurel wreath around it and it might look like that once would have been a beautiful column and has you know come a cropper over the years when actually that would represent the falling of of the head of a family so that mean the death of the male head of the family or the eldest son and laurel wreaths um, would represent victory over death so that's quite an interesting place to start. There's different types of cherub you can look for. Um, one of my personal favourites is um, glass pans. That if you, they're a very very common feature in nineteenth century masonry. But a fun little thing to look for is that commonly you'll just see two hands, and they can be interpreted in so many different ways. You know, feel free to look on my website or Patreon for more insight. But um, <laughs> the the cuffs, for example. Normally, they just look like two suit cuffs, just ungendered um, suit cuffs. But in some, you'll see that they're male and female cuffs. So it's a man and a woman holding hands because the female will have a particularly elaborately carved cuff. So I think that's quite fun to see, see the variations in that. And, you know, you'll have broken flowers. You'll have butterflies occasionally carved that represent either children or the soul going up to heaven there's there's so much to be found in graveyards that it's it can be like a um a panini sticker book of death that just go around and <laughs> see what you can find. if that doesn't exist it has to now I mean, right <laughs> i mean i'll put in a fiver if someone wants to start that up <laughs> man that would be brilliant i would love to have kids swap those stickers in the playground <laughs> like... yeah it's like oh you've got an obelisk oh, i'll swap yeah. that for the two table tombs oh go on then <laughs> Uh, excellent. Um, so from from the studies that you've done and the places that you've visited, mm-hmm. um, I imagine you must have plenty of favourites because you've written about them. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but are there are there any in particular that have stuck out for you that, that really sort of are a favourite, I guess? I, I suppose the temptation is always to go for the, the biggest and most elaborate, so the big Victorian ones. Um which my favourite in Bristol is is well known. It's Arnos Vale, and um, 
it's a beautiful, beautiful Victorian cemetery that does events. It's got a cafe. Any big cemetery that's got a cafe and does good cake is a hundred percent on my on my to visit list. That's a fabulous place. But I do think that discovering not necessarily discovering, but visiting cemeteries that are a little less loved by the community can be really exciting. So say in in Sheffield, Sheffield General Cemetery has been undergoing an amazing regeneration project over the last few years. And within this amazing, like multi-leveled cemetery, you can see the the story of of Sheffield in the 19th century. You can see that huge industrial revolution boom through the stories laid out on graves. So there'll be people that were, you know, ivory dealers and it's written on their tombs next to, you know, the the first person who was buried there and who just had a standard job in service. I think places like that where you can read them and you don't need to know the local community because you can find out loads about it while you're there. Same with them. Uh, Rock Cemetery in Nottingham. That's one of my all-time favourites. It reportedly has the, uh, the caves of Robin Hood in there, where he definitely hid out um, when he was hiding from the sheriff. But that's that's another beautiful place that's got ten. Well, they're called catacombs, but it's it's an old um, an old salt not salt sand pit because um, they used to dig out these enormous pits from the sand to help with the glass making industry because of all the pubs in Nottingham. So for something that was quite practical, like we need sand to make these glasses because we all like a drink. And then it turns into this stunning, really amazing sort of mini Victorian necropolis where there's like rows and rows and rows of huge, say like 12 foot angels, so densely packed that you, you'd think you were, you were somewhere in London. It's amazing. And it's right next to a main road. It's right near the park and ride. And it's completely hidden. It's a real treat. I think that's really high up there. I think those sort of places where you don't really know what you're going into and you're so pleasantly surprised. And you, mm. you feel like you've found, almost ironically, the heart of a city. I think they're really special places. I think most cities will have one. Absolutely, yeah. I I lived in Nottingham for quite a while, and not too far from that cemetery, so I'd often go there, you know, for a walk or to take in the space. And you're right, it is it's very impressive. And there's another one in Nottingham as well, a bit further into the city, which I'm sure you've been to. The one near Trent University that's uh, also Wilford. Is that Wilford Hill? Is that the other one? Uh, I'm not sure what it's called. Nottingham. Yeah, it's um, it's sort of between the university and then um, oh, what's it called? Canning Circus. Oh, okay, I'll have to get my map out. <laughs> Sorry, this is my, getting through my pictures. See what. <laughs> this is getting really Nottingham specific for people that don't know Nottingham, but yeah, <laughs> trust me, <laughs> listeners, it is. That's where it is. Yeah, but that's, that... Don't visit Nottingham if you take one thing away from this podcast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the grave sites, in particular, that you mentioned in your blog that I, I think I've heard of before, but is. It was very interesting was the pyramid tomb of, of William Mackenzie. Mm. Yeah, there's some absolutely fantastically weird graves in the UK. And I mean, for years, I'm, I hope this isn't just me, but I didn't know that the UK had several pyramids. And 
they're not obviously like the Grand Pyramids at Giza, but yeah, there there are several very very large um, pyramids in very unassuming locations around the UK. Yeah, and the the William Mackenzie one is. I mean, if we're talking about hidden treats, that's in the middle of Liverpool city centre. And so many people walk past it without realising what it is. Because it's, I think it's kind of on scrubland at the minute next to student housing. And it's, um, yeah, the, the final resting place of a man called William Mackenzie, who wasn't especially fascinating in life. He was incredibly successful. But in death, all these rumours started circulating about him as as is often the case with these sort of people and um after this pyramid was built i think it was by his brother over his grave these rumors started going around that he wasn't actually interred he wasn't laid down in a standard coffin but he was um buried propped up playing poker and then from that you get people saying he was playing poker with the devil oh you know and uh, apparently his his ghost has been seen wandering around on several occasions, uh, right up until modern day, uh, just pootling around Liverpool. So I think that's fascinating. I love those sort of hidden treats. And his pyramid's definitely one of them. Absolutely. Do you find that that's generally the case where um, a more sort of unusual esoteric type of memorial will have that sort of story connected to it, especially something like a ghost story? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, there's the strange, well, stranger, the more unique, should we say, the memorial. I think there's definitely a direct correlation to what people dream up about it. I mean, there's a, can't remember the, the family name, but there's a huge mausoleum in, oh, it's not Brookwood. It's the other one that begins with B in Brompton, Brompton Cemetery in London. It's this beautiful big mausoleum. And it's sort of Egyptian inspired. There's a lot of um, hieroglyphics up the side. And um, it's hard to describe, really. It's just like a big square box with fancy bits of, I mean, we're talking, it's it's building height, building height, Um, like a chapel height (laughs) thing. And um, because of these hieroglyphics and the fact that it's, um, it's kind of out the way, even though it's so big and it's beautiful. But a lot of stories have sprung up that it's actually a type of TARDIS. That right, it's, yeah, it's yeah. for time travellers. And this woman was a time traveller and all of these hieroglyphics, uh, you know, are actually just part of this big esoteric con. And, you know, is there a body in there or is it, yeah, a, a TARDIS that you can go in and find the secrets of not just the past, but the future? Hmm. But um, I think the, fam- <laughs> the family had it opened up. Might have been like 2016, maybe. And it's it's very much a standard mausoleum, but that that doesn't stop the story from still keeping its its claws in the the history of the cemetery. But I quite like that. Go to a cemetery, see a TARDIS. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, do you think that when very old ideas of remembering the dead? I mean, because I, I know with there was that sort of Egyptomania period in sort of late Victorian England where it almost became fashionable I suppose is the way of looking at it but do you think that I'm always intrigued by the idea that something can be repurposed without fully understanding what you're doing so if you've put magical Egyptian ancient Egyptian writing on something and you don't know you might not be quite sure what they Mm. say 
what if they what if they say something like I don't know this allows you to travel in time or or this is this is just like a, a magnet for the paranormal I'm you know I'm what you're probably a... right I stand completely corrected <laughs> no I just yeah. it's just something I am um, no I, th- I think just... you're right yeah <laughs> a, a lot of symbols especially I mean the Victorians were were buggers for it really but taking references to things images certainly religious symbols and just repurposing yeah. them because they look pretty you know is i mean it was rife it probably still is rife today certainly with like alternative clothing you know when you get a, an anchor cross and then some bizarre sigils that someone found in a john d manuscript from you know the elizabethan era and they whack it on a pair of jogging bottoms sell them for 30 quid and the next thing you know you're walking down the street summoning satan <laughs> yeah yeah you got your necromancy <laughs> trousers on <laughs> yeah yeah I, I like that though I, I i get what you mean with that definitely seeing sort of red herrings in <laughs> in, uh, in graveyards is definitely a perk you can add that to the list of when you visit cemeteries don't go looking for cuffs go looking for ways to summon the undead instead yeah go looking for sort of weird symbols and, and sigils mm. um Something that I'm intrigued by, which is sort of connected to to, to what you do and and write about, is the um, there was this plan in the late late Victorian era to build a colossal pyramid style sepulchre for all of London's dead. Have you have you researched much into that? I'm, I'd be fascinated to know more about that if you had. I don't know too much about that, especially, but I know before the the burial acts of the 1850s in in London, there was. Basically, so many of the cemeteries that are, you know, these band, these grand Victorian sort of Arcadian places now, they were they were built to those architectural designs because those people won competitions. So a lot of people would submit their plans, win, and then, well done, architect, we'll now build your thing. So I think when overcrowding and burial spaces became a real issue, and this is when miasma theory was still going around, and people thought if you could smell the dead, your own head was going to drop off, that sort of thing. People started submitting what they thought were very practical solutions to the overcrowding problem. So, yeah, that's when you get pits that are dug obscenely deep, like far deeper than the most plague pits we know of. And then people were saying, why don't we do pyramids? Because the Egyptians have got them. Why can't we nick them? <laughs> you know. So, yeah, I, I can't say I've looked into that one in particular, but I've certainly seen hundreds of bizarre um like patents and um cemetery plans over the years that are completely unfeasible like enormous towers to store the dead in when this would have been you know a regional cemetery in like south end or something and they're saying let's put the leaning tower of pisa up there full of corpses (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean it's called the metropolitan sepulchre it was apparently going to be 90 stories tall with mm. the capacity for 5 million dead people. I just I'm, uh, I, I just imagine that there's some sort of alternative London where they built it. <laughs> What's that like? I mean, what, what, would it, what would a city be like with that kind of structure in it? It's such a, in a way, it's an odd concept, isn't it? I mean, it's a, a mammoth kind of expansion on the places that we'd be familiar with. Yeah. I mean, I think... That wasn't that pyra- that pyramid. That one was. They were pushing for it to be in Primrose. Oh, can't even speak now. They were pushing for it to to be in Primrose Hill, 
So I think in this future alternative London, it'd be very nice to know where all the celebrities <laughs> would be hanging out because all their fancy houses are now just covered in 90 feet of, uh, of bodies. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me a bit of um, Mumra's headquarters in Thundercats. Like if they'd have (laughs) obelisks at all four corners, just in in other parts of London. Like, (laughs) yeah, why not pop in a Castle Grey School for good measure, and you've got quite a striking necropolis. Yeah, that tomb could be used to travel to that alternate London. (laughs) Yeah, just need to get to read the hieroglyphs right. Uh, We should write that idea down. (laughs) Well. Sod that, I'm going to go and get my train ticket and go there first thing tomorrow. Um, something else that you'd be very interested in is the, the spiritualist movement. Um, mm. Does that share connections with the sort of the aesthetics of graveyards and, and some of the ideas that we've been talking about in that regard? I think certainly the, like the cherry-picked um, visuals of kind of the late Victorian seance have definitely been sort of put in the same Venn diagram as a lot of um, 19th century funereal um, and mourning mourning matters. Yeah, I think, yeah, the the spiritualism that we see today, sorry, the interpretations of Victorian spiritualism and and early 20th century spiritualism that we see today in, in films and media is a very, very thinned down horror-centric version of a reality so we've very much picked the the crystal ball the beautiful medium or the very old physically unattractive medium because there's there's always one or the other and um we've sort of mashed it all together to fit this gothic narrative whereas in reality it was really a lot more chaotic and a lot more fractured than contemporary media really and I'd extend contemporary from like the the 50s onwards really of um of Victorian reality yeah it's completely skewed but that's not to say that those aspects of spiritualism aren't legitimate and aren't really cool to look at you know I mean a, a disembodied spirit captured on film or you know the the aesthetics of a of a talking board or a crystal ball is always going to have a a link because of that, well, like the Universal Monsters aspect, you know, because of that crossover, there's always going to be an appreciation of it, definitely. But um, yeah, spiritualism's very much my um, my love, <laughs> my baby at the minute. Cool. So something I think that you know I've read is that there tends to be an uptick in interest in those sorts of practices after periods where there's been a great loss of of life or through war or. Or some other form of disaster. Yeah. Um, is is that the case, or is that not so? No, definitely. There was the the secondary revival to modern spiritualism came after the First World War. Definitely, there was a lot of the the methodologies of Victorian spiritualism had been, you know, exposed or had become quite old hat, and people had moved on to different beliefs or just picked and chose all had picked and chosen what they liked from spiritualism and reapplied it to their own either secular or, or Christian beliefs, especially this is speaking, you know, only of the UK, but following the First World War. And this was a generation who hadn't really experienced loss on such a catastrophic scale before. So, 
yeah, people were just searching for answers and searching for anything to comfort them when when they'd lost so many people. And that's when resurgence of in, interest in esoteric belief systems, in spiritualism, in mediumship um, came about. Yeah, hugely in, in the in the First World War and Second World War, less so. But um, home circles and development circles definitely had a, a little bit of an uptick in um, the late 40s, early 50s. And then after that, obviously, we haven't had any you know, world conflicts um, like the First and Second World War in the UK experience anyway. But there have been little pockets of um, revivals. Like there was a uh, spiritualism revival in uh south wales just just prior i think just prior to the the first world war so you'll get these little these little pockets but yeah when when people experience grief spiritualism seems to to be a, a natural progression because people just want answers they just want comfort and yeah with with war came a, a lot of people who were very earnestly trying to help and of course as in any field a lot of people who were trying to who saw the chance to exploit um, the bereaved. So there's a real, real mix from that time, but it's a fascinating period to study any time where spiritualism experiences a big resurgence of interest. Absolutely. I mean, is it something that came over from America? Because I, I know there were the, the Fox sisters in the mm. 1840s and did the idea of, of this mediumship come from there? And, or was it something that already existed in, in the UK? These sort of things existed before. When we talk about the spiritualism movement, it's more sort of there were the the forerunners that allowed for the Fox Sisters. Um, but the movement as we know it, especially if we talk from modern spiritual if we talk about modern spiritualism from a US UK centric position, then we'll say the Fox Sisters really kick started contemporary spiritualism or modern spiritualism as it's known. But before that, before the Fox Sisters, there's many reports of Queen Victoria being visited by visiting mediums, lots of mediumship uh, during the the advent of mesmerism in Europe. Um, there was a lot of, you know, med early mediumship stuff related to the Shakers and um, early spiritualist movements in America. So there, there were factions everywhere and... Um, there have been for for centuries before that i mean even in the bible there's people that there's well mediumship is sort of warned against in um in oh God, let me think in deuteronomy and leviticus and then in the new testament um in luke and oh come on kate you went to a christian school you should know this <laughs> um i'm losing my touch and Corinthians, in, in a couple of the Corinthians, um, it's they they all address spirit contact and people searching for um, spiritual knowledge beyond just that of the direct link to God. And so, in the Old Testament, it condemns it. In the New Testament, it says no, all knowledge is godly knowledge. It's fine. Knock yourself out. So there has been. <laughs> I am paraphrasing. Okay, <laughs> I never did get that theology degree, um, but. Uh, it's always been there, but when it came together as like a big labelled movement, yeah, that, that was the Fox Sisters in um, Hydesville 
New York, and then that's when it, it spread, and the the boom time was really the the Fox Sisters. But it was around before that, definitely. Yeah, I guess um, ever since there's been dead people, we've been trying to get in touch with them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, do you think yeah. that the the mediums in the UK would they have been the the wise person in the village? This is you know the the that sort of cunning the cunning folk type person is it Mm. when we think of spiritualism and mediums are we is it a kind of continuation of of that type of person who had that sort of knowledge i suppose it depends on what period we're looking at and certainly what community we're Mm. looking at as well i wouldn't say that there's a direct correlation between sort of like the the traditional cunning folk or the uh like the medicine woman that sort of thing i think spiritualism came more about from in the UK, from a thirst for knowledge, I suppose, and a celebration, well, as as much of the 19th century was, a celebration of the individual and a celebration of the capacity and the power of the individual and that, and the general sort of new belief system at the time in that, that God was bestowing gifts on the 19th century. It was the blessed century. So why shouldn't the veil between the living and the dead be lifted? Why shouldn't every individual be special? Why shouldn't the the space between God and man delineate? So it was more just a movement of we all have this capacity within us and then people that believe they had mediumistic qualities would be, you know, developed in their communities, but there wasn't just one. So in communities you would have multiple mediums as opposed to just you know, one or two, as it would have been with with cunning folk. So, and um, unlike cunning folk and people that believe that they had these powers or this knowledge since since birth, a lot of mediumship and a lot of star mediums were developed. So they learned these sort of things at home, and then you know their their backgrounds were conjured up. Pardon the terrible pun, and um, <laughs> and so then then they thrive. So it was a bit like toddlers and tiaras but for um mediums that's what it kind of got like at some point like stage school kids oh, okay <laughs> if that makes any sense <laughs> i know of that show but i haven't watched it oh okay well it's, it's like yeah stage pushy mums pushy mums but with ghosts instead of dancing competitions ah right no there's a lot you. of that stuff <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so um when you research this this period of time and the people that were were doing this sort of thing was there anyone in particular that stood out for you as being the real deal ah <laughs> well well my interest see, i get more interested in people the more i think they're fraudulent which is completely right. <laughs> counterproductive to um psychical research or anything like that you're meant to either prove that they were legitimate or they were frauds and as soon as i get a sniff of them being fraudulent i'm like oh brilliant Show me how you did it. So at the, would 20th century mediums count? Yeah, yeah. of course, no. Um, whatever you have as an example, I, um, <laughs> I'd be happy to, I'm, I'm sure my listeners would be happy to hear it okay, too. Okay, I just don't expect to, I really don't want you to have loads of uh, angry emails saying, she said 19th century, this person was operating in the 60s. Uh, um, no, 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 it's fine, really. No, don't, don't worry about um, that. As far as legitimate, a lot of the, 
the problem is with a lot of mediums that I'm interested in at the minute, because I'm having a bit of a, I'm completely obsessed with the seventies and the eighties at the minute. And, you know, I'm dressing entirely in polyester and crimpoline. I'm watching too much Minder. So all of my <laughs> dresses are, I'm drinking out of a Colombo mug as I talk to you now. <laughs> I'm a well-adjusted woman. So the, the mediums that I'm interested in at the minute are kind of from that era too. So a lot of the the Doris Stokes, Ina Twig, and Doris Collins. I have when I've looked into their stories, these are all uh, women of a certain age and a certain aesthetic. Shall we say there's a lot of polyester caftans um, and perms. Um, so, although a lot of these women have been, they've been caught out. You know, caught out being fed information. Uh, Doris Stokes certainly was a couple of times. And I think Doris Collins was was knocked down a few times for being completely and wildly inaccurate. But I think with mediumship and with a lot of the big hitters, there's always a grain of truth in there or, or, a very, or something you can't quite explain away. Maybe not grain of truth, but there's something in there that makes you go, oh, okay, maybe they're not a fraud. But then you get into that whole issue of, well, if you fake one thing, you can discredit the whole argument. And so that's that's where I, I have a bit of an issue with those mediums. But there's a, um, a medium I've got quite interested in recently called Rosemary Brown, who was particularly, well, not popular, but had a brief sort of media career of infamy, shall we say, in the late 60s, early 70s. And she was a medium that channeled I think it ended up being 12 classical composers and wrote the, well, she didn't write them, obviously, the spirits of Liszt in particular came through to her and used her hands like gloves almost, um, wrote these pieces of music and then said, this is my this is my new composition from Beyond the Grave. And she did this for years for several different composers. And I find her story really compelling because she had three scattered years of piano lessons when she was younger. She had no conventional music training. She was not a maestro. She was not especially talented. But she was writing these pieces that were so complicated she couldn't play them herself and then was attributing them to these long dead composers. I find her, I don't know if legitimate is the word, but her story is very compelling, definitely. Yeah, I, I have heard of her, um, and you're right. That's when that kind of thing happens. It is, it is fascinating. I, I do get the sense that part of the problem with mediumship is that if you sort of pitch it as you're contacting the dead, if you give too much of a, of a description about how your process works, you're, mm. you're setting yourself up for having to prove that, and I think that can be when fakery comes in because you've got to keep producing results. And if you can't, you, you lose your revenue, don't you? You lose your the income you're going to get. If you strike out more than once or twice, you, you need to keep producing results. Whereas if it was seen as sort of trying to connect with a, a collective unconscious, I, I would imagine that that's not quite as you're not setting yourself up for failure as much in terms of in terms of the process that you're trying to achieve. I think that that might have been the case with Derek Akora. Um, yeah. Um, 
his time on Most Haunted was was when I most enjoyed that program because he's Same. he was so over the top um yeah. and fun but with him like he he had this whole thing about how he had a, like a three thousand year old spirit guy called sam and i don't think that was the case but i think he might have had an ability i think he did have some ability but it just wasn't consistent enough and he felt like he had to produce something and and he you know and he he was found out on most haunted so I am open-minded to mediumship. I just, I, I, I wonder if it's more that you're sort of connecting with, with a collective unconscious. Not to say that you can't connect with the dead, um, but when I think about it, like to my mind, it feels more perhaps like there's a you, you're con- you're connecting with like a collective unconscious. That's where sort of information can come from. And some people have a some people have a talent for it. But I'm waffling now. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. No, I think. Yeah, the the Derek Akora, she was at Exposure, if that's the word yeah. that was by um, Kieran O'Keefe, wasn't it, years ago. Um, it's a tricky thing. I think that's it's the same thing that Doris Stokes had, the argument of you expect so much night on night. Like when you turn it into a a career that pays and people are expecting you to give these messages night on night, you cannot have an off day. The spirits have got to be talking all the time if you believe that there are spirits talking at all you know this is all hypothetical um and in i think it was in the the first all of these mediums have so many volumes of their autobiographies honestly my bookshelves are bowing it's ridiculous in the um in the first um installment of doris stokes's autobiography i think called voices in my ear um she said that at one of her first public um uh, like mediumship demonstrations she wasn't getting anything through so she cheated and she you know said things she knew were wrong and then the medium I think it was the medium who taught her who nurtured her came up to her afterwards and says don't you ever do that again so I think that's interesting because from a PR perspective maybe acknowledging that you'd done that might not have been a, the best idea because obviously Derek Okora I don't think he ever admitted that he'd he'd messed up with the the most haunted thing um but then if you say i did it once i'll never do it again then you could manipulate your audience to make you think okay well every single message she's delivering now is legitimate because she promised that this is the way she does things now Mm. so I, i think it's mediumship is always ultimately oh it's gonna sound horrible no media performance mediumship will always have an element of spin about it because of the performance aspect yeah and yeah, yeah i think people come a cropper from that more often than more often than not uh yeah absolutely and it's it's something that is apparent in other other areas of this paranormal world i know in the enfield poltergeist clearly in that case there was weird stuff going on but there were definitely times when Janet, who was at the centre of that experience, mm. faked things. But I think it was to keep people in the house, and you know, and I, when mm. the investigators were there, it, that that house felt like it had a there were people around there who cared for her and would look after. Her. And I, I think she probably just wanted to keep that going, and yeah, you know, which is understandable. Yeah, no, absolutely. But yeah, the the Enfield the Enfield case is an excellent example. You know, all of the the information, all of the data that had been built up before 
could be instantly discarded because of one instance where she thought we need more um we need more evidence to keep them here you know we need more evidence so that all of this will have been won't have been for nothing you know all the teasing and the playground so yeah it's it's tricky but that's it seems to be the way it's always been you know they get so far and then someone fakes it and and then you know there's there's no way that you can really back out of that argument certainly from a, a skeptical perspective mm, yeah. yeah um just going back to what you were saying about how you're sort of drawn and interested to fraudulent mediums so they're mm. and how interesting they are i i know exactly what you mean because I, I'm I'm really fascinated by how in from the late forties onwards in America there were there was a lot of flim flam merchants who were sort of spinning off um connections to flying saucers and encounters with people from other worlds and coming up with schemes to to get mm. get money out of people and they were clearly, you know, shysters, but in a way they feel like an integral part of that era of ufology. They were keeping those ideas in the public consciousness about beings from other worlds and and the aesthetic of flying saucers and at times they're st- like you again like you were saying like their stories are still really interesting and there is something about it that feels like it's integral to the mm. almost integral to the truth like they're an aspect of the truth about whatever the truth is about these subjects. Yeah, it, well, it's it's like the the James Randi golden years isn't it? it? It's the years of faith healers and alien contact. It's it's pure Americana. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I know that you're currently near the end of a, of a PhD all connected to this. Yeah, finished it now. Oh, finished it. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> so what was that focused on? I'm guessing it's connected to what we've just been talking about, but yeah. No, it was in maths. I don't know what you're. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, well, it's it's literature based, but I was looking at depictions of female mediumship in nineteenth century um, Gothic literature because you know all all PhDs have to be so focused that the second you say the full title, it's so incredibly dull. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I was looking at. I'm really interested in in female mediumship, definitely, and that's kind of where I started was it three four years ago and then everything sort of I feel like I I need a break from the from the Victorians now and now I'm looking at female mediums in the in the 20th century but um yeah yeah I was mainly looking at kind of the like the young female medium like say uh, if if we watch a a film with a seance in it or read a book with a seance in it today um that medium as we imagine them or as we see them is in direct correlation to a lived Victorian reality that was put into literary tradition at the same time. Does that make sense? Mm. So a lot of what we see today as tropes around mediumship are directly related to Victorian literature, which is directly related to what was happening at the time in spiritualism, particularly to do with women, mediums, and the appearance of like the, the physical appearance of mediumship. So um, spiral of laughs. I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds really interesting. I since I've been doing the podcast, I've sort of realised that there's a very strong connection between fiction and reality. And 
and I was listening to a, a, a different podcast actually where they were they were talking about this and how it's actually really only in the Western world that there's deemed to be this barrier, this fiction and non-fiction. In yeah. other cultures, there isn't that barrier. It's just sort of everything just sort of is. And uh, I had a guest on a little while ago, an anthropologist called Jack Hunter, and he was also talking about how in the, in the West, it's very much that the, uh, the the waking world takes precedent over sort of other states of of being, um, mm-hmm. and in other cultures, it doesn't. So altered altered states are are equally important as when you're awake or or in any other state. And yeah. you know, and hallucinations aren't seen as as bad things in other cultures. And I keep I saying other cultures a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> But and in the West, you know, hallucinations aren't aren't particularly seen as being a positive thing, or mm. or they're often used as an explanation for when someone sees something that isn't there. Yeah. And and going back to what you were saying, I I I wonder I wonder how much of sort of modern mediumship that that is pro- genuinely practiced is influenced by how it was depicted in fiction. Yeah. And then uh, conversely, how much of how mediumship um, and spiritualism is, was practiced in, the, in quote unquote the, the waking world then goes into fiction it's, it feels like there's a real relationship there especially with paranormal subjects yeah definitely I think with if you see contemporary mediumship and paranormal investigation shall we say as like two different worlds under the same umbrella today the, the, the Victorian seance that both of those groups visualize or perform is completely different. And I'd say there's a, a trend at the minute with a lot of paranormal groups running their own Victorian seance evening. And, you know, rightly or wrongly, because, you know, these things were about experience and, and making a night of it, really. They will cherry pick um, a very gothic version of seance where it's very you know, dim lights, crystal balls, Ouija boards, with all of the humour and all of the religion and all of the faith taken out of it. And I find that very interesting, that that's kind of what we see as a Victorian seance today and treasure as a Victorian seance is so different from a Victorian seance that to reproduce an authentic Victorian seance today would seem laughable because it doesn't fit our ideas of what it should be how spooky it should be all velvets and gothic and drapes whereas in reality there was a lot more you know running around naked and chucking tambourines around hey um, whatever works so, right <laughs> yeah well it certainly did for the victorians maybe not in winter but yeah. um summertime that'd be fine <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah let's let's say ouija boards and mittens for the winter <laughs> <laughs> i love it um, one question I want to, I would like to ask is that with your research and all the mediums that you've you've read about and 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 looked into, have you ever encountered people using the ritual of a séance to contact things that aren't ghosts? I'm I'm just wondering if people have used séances to summon a UFO or or gone yeah, in yeah, gone into absolutely. a forest and tried to summon Bigfoot. Right. How long have you got? So. <laughs> Um, that, no, it's a fantastic question. They in the oh, let's say turn of the century in America, 
because it's always in America, isn't it? <laughs> there, um, there seemed to be a very fine line in spiritualism between ghosts, aliens, and imagined beings. So at seances and at private, not just seances, at private sittings where people would pay for manifestation or physical mediums to um to you know perform these these rituals for them as much as people might want to um contact the dead and contact people they knew there are many instances of people uh, very respectable people as that's always got to be said you know these these people weren't you know credulous in a in a bad way a lot of people were you know judges high up in the community all of this um there are many instances of people paying to meet new people from different worlds. So there was a big uptick in people wanting to meet Martians. And there's a lot of Martian royalty who would either, their messages would come through the medium or the medium would be, like I said, a physical medium and would manifest themselves as a, um, a Martian king, you know, a, a queen from Venus, ancient beings. Um, I think it was Queen Oriana kept coming up at, at seances, who was a female queen um, presented by a, an aging male medium. So that's a whole story in itself. Um, so there was a lot of that of Martians and space related royalty. Um, so there was people, there was aliens. Don't know about Bigfoot. Not too sure about that one. Well, I was focusing on the Martians so much. <laughs> but there's, there are many, many instances of of people wanting to make new connections with new worlds and um and new beings and receiving presents from you know different worlds from yeah from from the new planets there was there was an awful lot of that yeah well that's fascinating that makes me think of um like decades later, they do remote viewing and ask there's a case of someone being asked to remote view a location and it turned out that he'd been asked to look at Mars and he saw um, cities and things. Oh, right, one minute, before you go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I rem remember the thing I forgot. Um, there was a very brief period in paranormal history where um, certain people believed they could enter trances as in a seance environment and get this remote viewing experience with dinosaurs. Oh my, wow. <laughs> paranormal paleontology. That's what I was trying to remember. Yes. So there was many, many instances of people saying that they, they entered a trance and they were able to regress and would visit dinosaurs, sort of converse with them, and then would come back and draw these, these Jurassic, obviously wildly inaccurate, but that doesn't matter because dinosaurs, um, environments. And I mean, that was a whole movement for a while. There were a few books written on it that are heavy going, but <laughs> um, yeah, were people saying I had this vision of a place, or the people saying that their spirit was taken out of them and they interacted with this dinosaur environment as as a person, as they were then? They they could touch, they could, you know, walk through um, this landscape, and um, yeah, chat with with long dead dinosaurs. And obviously, they drew them, and they didn't weren't really like any species that we knew have existed um but yeah same with martians there was a, a medium called helen smith who 
oh god what year was she i think she might have been 20s i'm probably gonna be horribly wrong on that um she was a psychic artist who through trance would visit the planet mars and would draw these martian environments write in martian language which turned out ultimately to be a, a mix of several languages because she was an incredibly intelligent woman and she was uh, investigated by the scientist Theodore Flanoy, who wrote the book From India to the Planet Mars, and she went through several cycles of past lives, which um, was everything from like India in the time of, and it was like 400 years ago in India, and right through to future Martian interactions. So there was there was a lot of that, you know, the sky. Not even the sky's the limit. You know, the past isn't the limit. The future isn't the limit. Just put your mind to it and there'll be something that'll want to chat with you. Yeah, definitely. It'd be so interesting to sort of see if there's any reports of people seeing dinosaurs when these sorts of practices were going on um, in the area. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there might have been a, a ghost triceratops that wasn't recorded correctly absolutely yeah yeah, a few that said they went back and saw them definitely wow that'd be such a blast i'd love it (laughs) that'd be a damn good power to have wouldn't it (laughs) well kate this has been a really fun interesting conversation thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast no thank you so much for having me and uh letting me waffle about dead things for an hour if people want to find out more about your your work and your writing how best do they do that yeah, um, you can find me on my website at burialsandbeyond.com. On all social media, I'm under Burials and Beyond. And I have a Kofi account and a Patreon that is my little baby. And I update with frankly ridiculous content multiple times a week. So, um, yeah, come and hang out and let me tell you more about ghost dinosaurs. Wonderful. Well, I'll, I'll make sure to put all that information in the show notes. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kate. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Kate. If you enjoyed it and are interested in the subjects we discussed, you should definitely check out the Burials and Beyond blog. You won't be disappointed, I assure you. Please also consider rating the episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media, as it really helps the podcast to grow and find new listeners. You can follow some of the sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can now also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someofthesphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.